years ago, Christina and I were interested in understanding or uncovering various kinds of alternative medicine. We were looking into things that were homeopathic and alternatives to traditional medicine. We were just curious what was available and what was out there. And we discovered once this therapy that was for people with various kinds of autoimmune diseases. And it was the most bizarre and fascinating thing to me. There were people who were intentionally being stung with bees. In fact, the homeo... How do you call it? Homeopathologist? Homeopathicist? I have no idea. The natural medicine guy? He was taking the, the stingers from bees and intentionally injecting them into people who had various kinds of autoimmune diseases. And some of, the, some of the patients were saying, oh, I have remarkable results. Initially, it hurts. And, but it caused, apparently, I don't know, is Joe around here? We could talk about this later. Or is Joe, we'll have to talk about it. Find out if this is a real thing. But apparently, it caused a kind of reaction in the body where there was a release of certain endorphins or chemicals or something based on that pain, and those chemicals increased in the body and caused healing. Now, why am I telling you that story? For this reason, I, I, I'm going to open God's Word here this morning. We've just heard this passage read from Isaiah 65. I'm about to read to you a, a, a parallel passage that's, that's talking about this passage in Revelation. And uh, I want to say some things to you this morning that may be challenging to some of our hearts that are coming right from the Word of God. And here's my great hope. I've said it for years. I don't want to tell anyone what to think theologically so much as how to think theologically. I want to encourage you to open the Word of God to prayerfully seek God. This, this is sort of inherent to the congregational way anyway. This idea that we gather together knowing that we have some differences. However, we pursue Christ together as He is to be found in His Word in the pages of sacred Scripture as well as the, the witness of the historic church. And then we, we prod one another on like the Apostle Paul says. We, we push one another along. We spur one another along to love and good works. How many of you know that when a horse gets spurred, it might sting initially, but then he gets to run faster? It strikes me that a lot of the sins that afflict us are like those autoimmune diseases. A lot of them we sort of do to ourselves. And it also occurs to me that the only remedy is to sometimes painfully inject ourselves with bits of the Word of God because the Holy Spirit residing in us will likewise release truth, power to equip us for healing, for growth, and for change. G. Campbell Morgan, he was a great preacher from a bygone generation. He said this, he said, To me the second coming is the perpetual light on the path which makes the present bearable. He said, I never lay my head on my pillow without thinking that maybe before morning breaks, the final morning may have dawned. I never begin my work in, in the beginning of a day without thinking that perhaps he may interrupt my work and begin his own. This is now his word to all believing souls till he comes. The blessed hope of the church has been from the beginning the promise that he who went away into the heavens will in like fashion return. 
Now, for me, a lot of the talk about second coming in times, it feels so much like an abstraction to me that I've struggled to really spend a lot of time in those passages of Scripture over the years. But more and more, the longer I walk with the Lord, maybe it's because like the end of my time, it seems to be now at least on the distant horizon. And now I seem to be more willing, more wanting, more anxious to invest into understanding or thinking about what is there for today, like G. Campbell Morgan said, that I can reach into the future and pull back to give me hope in the present. Now, this passage is pointing to the millennial reign of Christ. I am a student of church culture, and I greatly suspect not more than 5% of you know what the millennial reign of Christ is. Raise your hand if this is a... Comp- yes, you, you BSF people, of course. And uh, so the millennial reign of Christ... Okay, this passage is pointing to a time. Now, I'm going to give you the snapshot. This passage is pointing to a time according to the biblical timeline of, 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 of the history of humanity, if you will. And for the, for the few theologians in the house, I'm presupposing a premillennial perspective on eschatology. To which most of you are like, can you come back to English? So this is real simple, okay? When we look at Bible passages referring to the second coming, there are multiple ways to view them because none of us have been there yet. And because various threads of Christianity have different sort of starting points theologically in terms of how they're going to view the Bible. Okay, so in the world of, you know, everybody here has heard things like the Apostles' Creed or or you've heard a sermon or you've read a passage of Scripture or you tried. Who tried to read Revelation and then just threw their Bible down? Right? Okay, yeah, okay. I totally am feeling you. And uh, I happen to have attended a seminary where they're like obsessed with the second coming. And uh, so I spend so much time in it. Sometimes I think that's part of why in the pastoral ministry I'm like, just stop it. Focus on today. Okay. Well, I want to focus on today by way of capturing some hope from the promise of his return and this millennial reign. Okay, there are those who look at the Bible and they look at those passages and they will come to what they call an ah-mill perspective. Ah-millennialism. If you want to look something up later, look that up. Take up the rest of your week. And uh, so ah-millennialism says when you read passages about Jesus' return to establish a thousand-year reign, and I'm going to read one of those to you in a minute, that it's just metaphor. That thousand years just means a really long time. Okay. So there's ah mill. Then there are those. This is like a lot of, um, well, you know, there's probably a lot of congregational pastors who think this way. And there certainly are a lot of uh, mainline Protestant denominational types who think this way. They say, look at it. They say, you know what? I can't make any sense of it. It's got to just be metaphor. When Jesus said he's going to come back, when the word of God says he'll, he'll reign over this earth for a thousand years, it just means a really long time. Okay. Then there are those who call themselves post-millennialists. Again, they allegorize the thousand years. They say we're in it now. A lot of problems with that view, and it's vastly a minority view. Then there is what is the majority view in the West. As best I can tell, it was the view of the early church. There's something called pre-millennialism. What does that mean? Okay. Jesus said, I'm coming back. When he comes back, I'm not even going to parse out all of the possible details between pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. Save that for another day. That means the tribulation, right? The tribulation. You read in the Bible, you read in the book of Daniel, you read in uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah, uh, they sort of point to it. Daniel really talks about it. Revelation talks about the Antichrist, 
There's going to come a day when there's going to be a, a world leader arise and take control. And, and uh, maybe, God bless you if you haven't read these books, maybe you've read some of the Left Behind series. Oh, you know, they're, they're, it's questionable theology in it, but it does point us to, and, and, and these books got a lot of people, one of, the, one of the authors happened to be one of my professors at Liberty, and uh, so, so at least it, it kind of brought awareness in recent years to people to think about the end times and the second coming. The plainest reading, as I can gather, of Scripture goes something like this. Christ came. He fulfilled a vast majority of Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. You see, when you read the Bible, you've got to read it through this already and not yet lens. Jesus fulfilled a bunch of things. There's a bunch left to be fulfilled. He fulfilled Old Testament prophecy regarding Himself. He gave us the New Testament. And then what happened? He said, as He went away, the angel says, why, why do you stand staring? Get to work. Put your hand to the plow. That's what matters today. Don't you know the one who went away in heaven, he's coming back. Now the New Testament authors try to tell us a little bit about what that's going to be like. The simplest reading of the text gives you something like this. Near the time of the return of Jesus, there's going to be a terrible period in human history called the tribulation. Some scholars say that the church will be raptured out. We'll avoid it. I'm not one of them. I hold to yet another sort of lesser view that I think was clearly the view of the early church. I'm convinced we're going to go through the tribulation. Because when I look at the Bible, I never see an instance where God spared His people from a time of purification through going through suffering and persecution. Dare I say to you, and it's a self-indictment, that among the reasons why our Christianity is so often lacking in fervor in faith and in fire is because of a lack of pressure upon it. I don't see any instance in the history of the church where God spared His church from persecution. Rather, like Tertullian said, the early church father, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Now, maybe, maybe, I hope I'm wrong on this, maybe seven years before Jesus comes back, the church gets raptured out. Hey, I'm cool with that doesn't appear to be the case. The early church didn't think that way. In fact, that theology wasn't invented until the 1800s, largely because of a man named J.N. Darby and then popularized by C.I. Schofield in his uh, study Bible, which was put out in about 1917. So that's the biblical timeline of human history. And the great hope of those early believers, a major part of the reason that they endured persecution was because they looked at the world not through the lens of comfort or of, 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 of things in this world. They looked at their present circumstance and said, wait a minute, no matter how bad it gets, he's coming back just the way he left. And in Thessalonians, it talks about there being a great snatching away. And they said, look, we're going to be snatched away up into the heavens when he comes back. And, and, then, and then he's going to transform the earth. And then he's going to reign for a thousand years in real terms. That there will be finally a righteous king on the throne in the new Jerusalem. And that thousand years will be for another time to, to give more sinners a chance to repent. And in those days, as it says in Isaiah 65, the earth will be restored to something like what it was prior to Noah's flood. Something like what it was in the garden. 
When a man who dies at 100 years, people say, what happened? He was so young. The blessed hope of the church has never been to avoid or escape problems or persecution now, but that there was coming a day when Christ would come back and restore all things. And in the meantime, they had their hand to the plow and, 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 and they're willing to, and now I'm going to start using present tense terms, and they are willing in Bangladesh to suffer persecution because their hope is the blessed hope of the church, the time of His return. And they're willing to suffer persecution and martyrdom in northern India where their churches are routinely blown up by Muslim extremists because their hope is the blessed hope. They're able to endure persecution in Afghanistan and in Iraq. They're able to see their children martyred for the cause of Christ because their hope is not in the kinds of hope that's in this world. Listen, I, I, I want to caution you today not to be so Amerocentric so as to assume that everyone around the world has, has gathered in such a nice meeting place as ours or, or that they've come in such relative security and comfort or, or that the police in their land aren't out to get them because of their faith. I, 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 want, I want to know Christ in His fullness. The, the, listen, I'm not a guy who gets paid to preach. Like, I figured out a long time ago, I probably could have an easier life and, and drive a nicer car. You know, I, I like to think of myself as a really smart guy. And most people think I'm at least kind of smart. I figured out a long time ago that I could probably do something else with my life and it would be easier. Why aren't we doing everything that we can with our life? to make Christ glorified in our life. C.T. Studd said, He is a fool who will not give away that which he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. Those believers under persecution are willing to endure martyrdom, willing to endure the loss of all things as Jesus calls all disciples. He says, he says if you're not willing to carry your cross, you're not worthy of me. And then when He blesses us, like He does all of us, He calls and commands us to use our wealth, our time, our energy, our talents, our resources to bring glory to Him, not more comfort to ourselves. So there's coming a time when Jesus will return. Listen to this passage of Scripture, and then one other, and then two points, and then we'll be done. Revelation chapter 20. When you read in beginning in about verse 5, well, the end of verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is talking about the resurrection of the dead. So there's coming a time when Christ will return. Thessalonians says with a great trumpet and a great shout, and the dead in Christ will be resurrected. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. You see, there's this, there's this thing you've got to deal with, this thousand-year period. It's mentioned... A couple of other places, but here most clearly. It, it looks like the dead in Christ are raised, and there's this thousand-year period, and then at the end of that, those who fell away, who, who fell asleep, the Bible says, without the Lord, then they're going to be resurrected too. And it says, then there's going to be the great white throne judgment. That's where believers are going to be, be judged for their activity in this world. 
And it appears as though there's even some kind of reward. We'll be rewarded according to our faithfulness. So what does that mean? I don't know what that means. I figure for me, it's like if I'm just in heaven, great. I don't care if I get a bigger mansion or an extra crown. So I don't know exactly what that means. And I don't think any scholar or, or Bible student really understands exactly what that means. But it appears as though there is some kind of relationship to how we live as Christians to some kind of reward that we get. And then there are those who will be resurrected to face final judgment. And then at that time, they'll be cast away. What does that mean exactly? I don't know exactly. Historically, the church has said they're cast away into a place of great torment. There are some scholars who say they just, they just cease to exist. In Daniel chapter 7, the Bible says here, Daniel speaking, I saw in the night vision And behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they they brought him near before him. He came to God, the Ancient of Days. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. I'm going to share with you two points. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. There's coming a day of this thousand-year reign where Christ will show us what it looks like to have a, have a righteous king on the throne in Jerusalem ruling over all the earth. Won't that be its change from what exists on this planet in our own land and everywhere else where men rule for power, for pleasure, for dominion? His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And my question for you today is, since his reign will be perfected and unending in the millennium and then ushering in eternity, should it not be currently perfecting in us? I want to suggest to you today that there is a crisis of simple faith afoot in the churches. A crisis of simple faith, and I think it's twofold. On the one hand, there are those who want a faith that's so simple that it's too simple to be consistent with what God has called us to be and to be becoming in Christ. There are those who want so simple a faith so as to inadvertently nullify faith. What do they say? Just be kind. Just be nice. What do they say? The God I serve wouldn't have standards. Anything goes. Just accept whatever it is. That's how you're nice. In fact, it occurs to me that there is a kind of false religion afoot in the body of Christ today far too common in congregational churches and other churches, in all churches amidst the sort of American Christian melee. Where the goal is just not to offend anyone. It wants love with no foundation of truth. It wants a tree of spiritual fruit. But that tree is not to be rooted in the Word of God, but in the soil of not offending anybody. Frankly, I find the culture of non-offense very offensive. Faith that is interested only in kindness and not having that kindness rooted in truth, I would suggest is no faith at all. It's not all up for grabs. The spiritual fruit spoken of in the Bible is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness and 
faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? Faithfulness to the Word of God. We need to live our faith simply, honestly, unpretentiously. But I want to suggest to you today that if your faith is rooted in any principle other than those found in the Word of God, you need to reattach those roots. The other side of this simple faith is a kind of faith that is not simply lived out. His kingdom is a kingdom without end. And in a world of constant struggle and change, we have a higher hope, a sure foundation. And you and I ought to live out a simple faith, an honest faith, an an unpretentious faith that, that affects the real world. So on the one hand, I think you have all of those people who who want too simple a faith. Just give me Jesus, they say, none of your doctrine. Where, Where do you think the doctrine came from? It came from Jesus, for goodness sake. Well, just give me love and don't offend anybody. I'm sorry. Jesus said, and you just heard it. We just said, we just read it as an antiphonal read. We just read it. Jesus from his mouth says they're going to persecute you. They're going to hate you. And we're like, well, I don't want to offend anybody. I'm so offended by your non-offense. His kingdom is a kingdom without end. And in a world of constant struggle and change, we have a higher hope, a promise that the one who, who has given us new life is, he not only went away, but he's going to come back and he's going to establish a perfect reign. And heaven isn't just about where you go between this life and his coming. The ultimate heaven, eternity, where the streets are paved with gold, is after he returns. Not the intermediary state. Not, not, we always talk about that, just heaven. What about the new earth? You and I have the real possibility of actuated hope in our heart that can animate the actions of our hands, our money, our time, our affections, and indeed give the Lord room to work through us, in us, in the real world. Today is Christ the King Sunday, and indeed the King is coming. And we should have our hands to the plow now, and and we should reach out into the millennium, reach out into the future, and pull hope back and say, that's my ultimate home. I told Felicity the other day, I sure wish we had a bigger house. She goes, I thought you said you're going to get one. Where was that place you said you have a giant house waiting for you? I said, that's in heaven, baby. So who cares how big or little this house is in the meantime? Our life is a bit like a faithful son who gets started laying out the tools while waiting on his dad to get home from work to start the project together. In the wood shop later that afternoon, our life now is a bit like the daughter gathering craft supplies while waiting on her mother to meet for a a time of glittering and scrapbooking. Our life now is exactly like this if we are followers of Jesus. It is exactly like being obedient to our Lord to the primary purposes of the church, which is not to not offend. It is to share the truth of God and to live out authentic love in the world so that the world can look at us whether we're persecuted or we abound. Like the Apostle Paul said, I have learned to be content in all times whether I abound or whether I suffer or whether I'm persecuted. And where does that hope come from? It came from Paul because he had seen the resurrected Lord and he knew that the one who went away is coming back. Listen, our hope 
for the future can fuel a life in this world where we can do both. We can stand firmly on the truth and have the fruit of the Spirit so that when people see us, they are invited to taste of the Lord because He is good and they can see His goodness in us. When we only acquiesce to the culture of non-offense, we nullify all that possibility. Won't you today join me in pressing in closer to his face, which we shall one day see in real time, touchable, visible before our own very eyes. Amen.